If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. So today, I am talking with Mercedes Trigos about eugenics. Mercedes, can I ask you to introduce yourself? So I am a PhD candidate in the English and American Literature Department at NYU. And my research focuses on 20th century literatures of the Americas, racialization, gender, sex, and sexuality. Awesome. So what the heck is eugenics? Okay. Eugenics is the idea that you can perfect humanity through control of reproduction. There's a little bit of controversy, I think, in terms of how the term translates. But the term comes from Greek, and it means well-born or of good birth. If we were to focus in the Americas, there are two branches that are the most popular. So one of them comes from Francis Galton, who coined the term eugenics, and he's called the father of eugenics. His model is mostly dependent on biology. And then there's the Lamarckian model that is mostly common in Latin America. And that model takes into account both biology and the environment. So it's sort of like a nature and nurture meet together approach. And I would say that the practical approaches of eugenics, there's two of them. One would be positive eugenics, in which you want to encourage the quote-unquote desirable traits being passed down from generation to generation. And then negative eugenics, which basically means cutting out any trait that you deem undesirable. And this would include measures like sterilization, euthanasia, murder, also in extreme cases. Right. So the idea in positive eugenics is that you want certain people to breed the good people. And in negative eugenics, you want to prevent the bad people from breeding. Right. Okay. So then now that I know, (laughs) uh, how do I use eugenics? Um, Okay, so I think you could think about how we historically have used it. And like the other one is how the legacy of eugenics continues to be in the world. If you think about things like standardized testings, or even some aspects of human and genetic enhancement that people use now or want to do like pre implantation, genetic profiling, people who get to choose theoretically what characteristics they want. 
in their future babies. That's one way of in which we continue to use eugenics. And wait a minute, is that really a thing yet? I thought yes. that was just like sci-fi. No, I think it's like yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's at least possible, but it's basically um very basic right now. Okay. So you can't really choose, you know, I want my baby to have green eyes and blonde hair. But the ideal is that at some point you would get to the point where you can do that. All right. So if I'm not like looking for a designer baby, uh-huh. how might I use eugenics? I guess I would hope that you wouldn't use yeah. eugenics. <laughs> in relation to your research, how did people use eugenics in literature in the Americas? One of the things that is difficult about the ways in which certain authors use eugenics is that eugenics was so popular at the time that certain ideas that seem merely, you know, like public health mm-hmm. ideas are actually eugenics based, right? So even though they seem very motivated by just an idea of health, they're usually tied to ideas of health that are based on mostly arbitrary criteria and are tied to ideas or to hierarchies of race, class, and quote unquote, who comes from the good stock. Nation too, right? I feel like eugenics is really strongly linked to ideas of nationhood. Yes, definitely. The word in Spanish for raza, like race, Mm -hmm. has multiple meanings if you look at the literature from different moments in time, right? So you have, on the one hand, the actual translation of what we would call in English race, thinking of like Asian race, white race, etc. And then there's also the idea of race as the nation. So race in that sense becomes how do we make this nation the strongest and how we use that to unify the nation. But it gets complicated because it's also tied to the other type of race, right? right? And that particular type of race that forms the nation, the ideal nation. From my research in United States literature of the early 20th century, I think they're feeling a bit of that crossover too, especially in stuff that's connected to eugenics. Like there is a sense that there is an American race. Mm -hmm. What happens over the course of the 20th century, in part as a result of the Holocaust, is that the word race in English gets split away from the idea of nation a bit. Mm -hmm. It's a huge problem, right? Like when you're reading that literature, Mm -hmm. the danger of eugenics is that it's exactly that slippage between race being whatever I want it to mean, right? So if I'm coming at it reading about the American race, that means something different reading it from the US than if I were to read that same literature from Mexico, for example, or if I were thinking of the quote-unquote, human race. Right. That slippage is pretty strong in the early eugenics literature, too. Like, mm-hmm. we're saving the human race. Though, you know, there are plenty of authors at that time who are pretty explicit about, like, we are saving the white race. Mm-hmm. I feel like we should maybe say also, because eugenics is so strongly identified with the Holocaust, and I think you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but eugenics was super popular mm-hmm. in ways that seem totally insane to us now. (laughs) It was. I think you can understand why it was so popular because who wouldn't, the premise of it is amazing, right? Like the idea that you wouldn't have to deal with 
the difficulty of disease, the difficulty of disorder in terms of law. I think eugenics gave something that was really useful for people in terms of just grouping what to us now is obvious are not related qualities. But there's something useful in grouping those so that you can just call them a moral evil and just pretend that you can move on from those if you were to just not have them around. Yeah. You know, or to imagine a world in which you didn't have to have those around. Yeah, it involves a lot of utopian thinking. Definitely. It's about like, how do we create a perfect world? We could create perfect people and they would make the world perfect. And there's something so attractive about that, right? For everybody. Yeah. Well, then let me ask you our last question, to which you are free to answer no. <laughs> How will eugenics save the world? Oh, okay, yeah, it won't. <laughs> it definitely will not. How could eugenics save some aspects of the world? I think it would be through the lesson that we've gotten through its history. So I think of how tempting the utopic aims of eugenic ideologies can be. We have to be careful because the notion of perfecting human nature always drags with it a way of assigning value to certain lives over others. And I think eventually that ends up forcing a hierarchy that's based on mostly arbitrary or like random criteria of health and or superiority that has caused an incredible amount of physical and psychological trauma for many, many generations of people throughout the world. I think short answer is it won't save the world but maybe we can learn from it by not using it anymore, ever. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it can also teach us that there is something flawed in this dream of saving the world. You know, we are talking specifically of eugenics. I think you can tie that to a lot of the modernizing impulses, right? Of like, what's better and how do we get better and this urge to always progress? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess like modernization in the sense of progress and how dangerous that is if we're not careful. Yeah. It's not a coincidence that eugenics is super popular in what historians call the progressive era. Mm -hmm. There's this great investment in progress. And one of the tools that people think they're going to use, it's not just railways and telegraphs, it's eugenics. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see what you think about this, because sometimes I think I may be kind of exaggerating the notion of this. But if you think about how we live our daily lives, and especially I think in the US, where there is this notion that you can become better every day, right? And your life is always sort of linearly progressing, hopefully, or the ideal is that you're always becoming a better person, you're always learning as you go through life. And I think that sort of mimics the structure of thinking that as a nation, you can progress towards a better nation and we can become a better world day by day. And eugenics offers you something that seems really practical and really accessible in how to get there. Yeah, totally. Because it ends up being something really intimate that you're controlling, right? It's like you're linking your particular reproductive decisions which have like an enormous impact on your daily life. So it's about tying one's individual progress narrative to the like grand progress narrative of the race. Yeah. And now you're making me think also of how attractive that is too, 
right? To think that you have a place in making the world a better place just by choosing, quote unquote, a healthy partner. I feel like there's also something there about contemporary culture and what you were just saying about the idea that we're all living a bit better every day. I don't know, some days are not better. (laughs) (laughs) And like this year certainly wasn't better. It wasn't. My brother always says this about phones, how sometimes they're actually not designed better. Like you can have a newer phone that is supposed to be more advanced technologically just because it was created later. But sometimes that's actually not a better phone. It's a fallacy. The idea that we have that everything is sort of progressing. And as we go through time, we get technologically more advanced. It's true in some ways, but not necessarily. Maybe in on the grand scale, maybe, if we believe in grand scales, but probably not on the like nitty gritty, everyday kind of scale. Progress feels like a really jerky phenomenon and one that is false in a lot of ways. I'm not sold. <laughs> I'm not sold on the idea. Talk progress. Down with progress. <laughs> That's what eugenics teaches us. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us about eugenics. You're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonic Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.